One of the things that really struck me, you could feel not just that people were fearless, but that they were joyous. There was a way in which they brandished signs, the ways in which they screamed uh, political slogans that made you feel that these people had no constraints. These people did not worry about what may happen to them tomorrow because what they felt they had at stake was much more important and much less scary than what they could lose if they did not walk on the streets. To talk more about all of this on a historic day, as we say, with Shereen Tadros, who's live outside. There have been so many times since 2011 when I have tried to describe to people and friends what that feeling was like in the square. There really are no words. I mean, you have to understand, you weren't allowed to say anything against Hosni Mubarak not at home, not in the street. So, you know, juxtapose that with walking into Tahrir Square in 2011 and having pictures of Hosni Mubarak with the words leave, go, um, with people slapping pictures um, of, of his face with their shoes. This was the feeling in the square. Those were the slogans you heard, and it was spectacular. Until now, it feels like a dream. I remember the first shot we've seen from Damascus in Al-Hari'a, where people were chanting, which is Syrian people won't be humiliated. To have the chance, um, or like the hope for a free press, for some kind of freedom of expression, that was a dream. And that's the uniqueness uh, of that moment, the moment of possibility. The moment of rapture where the systems of authority, where hierarchy begins to fall apart. The same chant that started in Tunisia uh, basically snowballed. So from Tunisia to Egypt to Syria and continued to grow. Of course, you know, it stands in stark contrast to everything else that, uh, that subsequently unfolded. But at least during those moments, people could touch and feel what a, a glorious future or a victorious future might look like. revolutions that came to be known as the Arab Spring began a decade ago, in December of 2010. It was a time in which anything seemed possible. Arabs mobilized in their millions in collective calls for democracy, justice, freedom of expression. Governments fell. Autocrats, names like Mubarak, Gaddafi, Ben Ali, went with them. In this special edition of The Listening Post, we're taking a retrospective look at what happened then the subsequent crushing of democratic movements, the clampdowns on freedom of the press that remain in place today. We've chosen to focus on the stories of three countries, Tunisia, where the movement got its start, Egypt, where it appeared to reach its height, and Syria, where it hit a brick wall. The Arab Spring's starting point came on December 17th of 2010, in the small central Tunisian city of Sidi Bouzid where a street vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi, fed up with local official corruption, unable to make a living, 
set himself on fire. It was one individual act of protest that would cost Bouazizi his life and ultimately set off shockwaves that would travel from North Africa to the Arabian Gulf. The regime of President Ben Ali created a kind of political police and a whole network to get into people's heads so that no matter where you are, no matter who you are, we felt the walls have ears and we are being listened to all the time. Even families inside their own homes did not dare to speak about Ben Ali. And obviously, people did not dare to post on social networks or discuss what was happening in the media, did not dare to criticize the regime, except a minority within them. And that completely changed. This feeling of fear was completely overturned. What was bubbling in, in, in Tunisia, of course, was um, a movement that until the uprising had been underground of bloggers, of citizen journalists, of people who use the new emerging digital information sphere to begin exchanging information, to create networks. Once the uprising started in Tunisia, that whole network came above ground. Once Tunisia became this magnet for news, for images, for stories about there could be a different tomorrow, then it emerged as a node in that big network. There's so many glorious moments uh, that, are, that have now become iconic. My personal favorite, there was short videos of a man in his 50s or so walking up and down Bourgheba Street in Tunisia shortly after the fall of Ben Ali. And he's calling people in their homes. In an empty street telling them, there's nothing to be afraid of, you're now free. Uh, and his voice is echoing through this empty avenue. That was just an absolutely mesmerizing moment. And as it traveled around the Arab world, it, uh, it ended up inspiring so many others uh, to do the same. One of the more remarkable things that happened in 2011, and certainly in Tahrir Square, was this sort of outburst of, of language and terminology. Words like democracy, freedom, justice, rights. The protesters in the square framed their demands and articulated them using a rights framework. One huge moment was when Mona Shazli, who is a very famous presenter on Egyptian television, interviewed Wa'il Ghanim, who had just been released from prison. And that interview, which it felt like the entire 100 million population of Egypt watched, was a real turning point. One, for the media, because it was the most honest thing we'd ever seen. Um, and two, because it just showed real pain of this activist who didn't realize what he had unleashed, but was so taken aback by what was happening. And there hadn't been really a symbol of the Egyptian uprising up until that moment. And suddenly Wa'il Ghanim took that spot somewhere.
Egypt's president, Hosni Mubarak, was forced from power on February 11th. Four days later, the first demonstrations broke out in Libya. Another leader would fall there. From Morocco in the west to Yemen and Bahrain in the east, autocratic Arab leaders faced existential challenges of varying degrees. Some met their citizens' demands halfway. Others, like Syria's Bashar al-Assad, confronted protesters with force. The government implemented a media blackout, banning foreign journalists from entering, arresting local reporters who tried to get the story out. Like Tunisia, the unrest in Syria exploded far from the capital. Graffiti, written by a student on a school wall in the border city of Dara, a message for the president. It's your turn now. At the beginning of the Syrian uprising, we heard so many slogans saying, which is the Syrian state media is lying. There were this sense that you are witnessing events and they are being manipulated and presented in a completely opposite way on the state media. That encouraged many people who were students, who were electricians, carpenters, and different kind of backgrounds to just hold their mobile, any cameras that they can get hold on, and document things. Many Syrians thought that by showing the world what is happening in their home country, something would change. And they believed in the power of media because they saw uh, what it did in Egypt and Tunisia. I think that's basically when um, a lot of us, uh, again, uh, prematurely, naively or not, uh, felt that this is a historic turning point and Syria will soon become a free and democratic country where there's going to be a free and independent press. And I think that's basically the moment when a lot of people became invested or interested in not just going to demonstrations, but also in creating institutions that embody this sort of democratic moment of hope. So that's basically the moment when you start to have a lot of newspapers, a lot of radio stations, a lot of uh, online magazines, um, also a lot of civil society organizations. And obviously, you know, I mean, now in hindsight, we realize this was completely naive because um, journalism in this, in this sense, or bearing witness in this sense, did not actually make a huge difference. In the halcyon days of the Arab Spring, this network, Al Jazeera, was a key conduit for the movement. Beaming the story across the region and around the world. Hosni Mubarak has gone. Let's go live to Cairo. Then, in Egypt, things went full circle. Al Jazeera's perceived support for the first government elected after the fall of Mubarak, headed by Mohamed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood, resulted in the network's reputation, one that had been 15 years in the making, being challenged. Al Jazeera played a substantial role from its inception, really, in 1996 in uh, shifting the news agenda in such a way to allow those who are not in government to critique those who are in government. Before you know it, Al Jazeera's journalists and cameras were in the right place at the right time. So this is what's raining down on Idlib right now. 
BBC, CNN, all the major sort of broadcasters around the world were picking up Al Jazeera's exclusive footage. So Al Jazeera was able to, to really bring the narrative of social mobilization and protests from the Arab world to the world at large and to elevate uh, the discussion um, in such a way that made the aspirations of the protesters in the region the only story worth exploring. The Muslim Brotherhood, who was perhaps the most well-organized political force, won the election. The rule that lasted barely one year was not what people had hoped for. Corruption continued, authoritarianism continued. One of the reasons that people stopped following Al Jazeera in Egypt, for example, is because a lot of them felt that if this is the voice of a political formation that has failed and that has now been displaced from power, then that news outlet is no longer an important source of news. By 2013, the Morsi government had been deposed in a coup. The authorities then tried to take Al Jazeera and Egyptian journalism down with it. The new government was led by military man turned president Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Three Al Jazeera employees were among the dozens of media workers arrested on Sisi's watch. The court case was a show trial. The government's evidence against Al Jazeera was feeble, but reputations suffered all around. That same year, on August 21st, the Assad government showed its citizens and the world how far Syria was prepared to go to suppress the kind of dissent that had toppled other Arab leaders. The rockets that slammed into the outskirts of Damascus that day carried chemical weapons. And it was one of the biggest massacres. More than 1,500 people were killed at that one. So it is supposed to, to shake something and uh, enforce some kind of action or reaction. Um, so when it didn't, then nothing we can do is going to be changing our realities. Nothing we can do or document or film or be killed for that would stop these massacres and this horror. Then it's useless. And that's when we've seen many citizen journalists dropping this and going back to their shops, to their workshops, and um, just giving up. I think that was a turning point not only for Syrians in the sense that, you know, the world is not going to do anything to stop the Syrian regime from perpetrating war crimes. It was also a, a moment of despair for journalists around the world in the sense that it completely blunted the emancipatory and incisive uh, razor of journalism. Uh, journalism did not matter anymore. Um, it did not make a difference anymore. Doctors, lawyers, and now journalists are all targets of the government. That was the case across the Middle East and North Africa. The blowback against dissent and the coverage of it just grew worse. Back in uh, Egypt right now, 2,000 people have been arrested. Those governments have also diversified their dissemination of propaganda, outsourcing what was once the responsibility of state-owned channels to privately owned outlets, some newly taken over by the state, others just eager to please. Egypt's media have proven, night after night, that more voices do not add up to a plurality of opinion. 
Journalism, such a critical component at the outset of the Arab Spring, has become one of its long-term casualties. The Egyptian state um, under Sisi um, is not a practitioner of the old style of propaganda where you have you know, the one news anchor of the state television channel that everybody watches who says what the leaders want you to hear. For the very first time, a lot of the main television channels in Egypt are directly owned by the Egyptian military, right? This is new. This did not used to be the case. That's dynamic number one. Dynamic number two is the unleashing of these larger than life, insufferable personalities on talk shows. And these personalities tend to turn the state narrative into an irresistible drama. That's part conspiracy theory, part theater of the absurd, part propaganda, and part political talk show that the people find irresistible. And so in combination, uh, I think these two create sort of a very toxic media sphere. When it is a war against independent critical press in the country. The region at large has some of the worst ratings as far as the treatment of journalists, detained journalists, prosecuted journalists, journalists who are either exiled or sent to live abroad. One of the greatest losses in this process is the ability to tell you know, reality as it is, the ability to relay truth to, to audiences and publics at large. Um, so that's a very, very hefty cost to pay and unfortunately it has major repercussions across the board in the sense that you only need to target a handful of journalists before the rest of them are in line. In some countries, it wasn't just governments targeting journalists. So did the other actors, proxy players, rivals for power, who together have managed to turn the Middle East into one of the world's most dangerous places to cover. Scores of Arab journalists have been killed, exiled, or now languish in jail. Among them, Al Jazeera's Mahmoud Hussein, who has been held without charge in Cairo for four years. The Egyptian photojournalist Shao Khan spent six years in prison for taking pictures of a protest. In Syria, Wasim al-Adol, killed in a Russian airstrike on the city of Idlib. His camera was rolling as he got hit. And you can add the name of Ra'ed Faris, another Syrian, to the list of journalists taken before their time. His killing, thought to be at the hands of militants formerly affiliated with Al-Qaeda, left a hole difficult to fill. Hundreds of people attended the funeral of the well-known Syrian radio host and activist. He believed peaceful revolution could bring change to Syria. Saad al-Faris, he was not just a journalist. He was one of the reasons why those pro-uprising were able to say that it is not regime against jihadists. There are people who are fighting both parties for their own dignity, for their basic rights. He was threatened by the regime, his house was destroyed, and he kept refusing to stop. He 
kept resisting all of the threats that he was facing. He established Radio Fresh, the first local radio which was completely based inside Syria with tens of staff, half of them were women. So he was that exceptional and I think that was too much for any uh, dictator, for any criminal to, to handle. So many uh, tried to kill him before and sadly um, they succeeded. Against those challenges, there are some outlets like Syria's Al Jumhuria that have proven independent journalism can survive, even flourish, after the spring. Egypt's Madamasra and Inkifada in Tunisia have done the same under different circumstances. They all offer quality reporting expertly presented that audiences have come to value. Given the restrictions, and in some cases the dangers the reporters face, their work is all the more notable. Al Jumhuria was established uh, on, uh, uh, in March 2012 when we uh, realized that something unprecedented was happening in the country and it was very important for Syrians to not only be uh, citizen journalists simply reporting to basically provide international journalists with the footage and the raw data for, for others to come and sort of edit and uh, analyze. We need to have our own place where it wasn't just citizen journalism, it was also in-depth reportage. For the Syrian conflict, in a way, not to be reduced to just the daily death toll of its heroes and its martyrs and its victims, but also for Syrians to take a step back and to be able to come together to reflect and to think uh, not only about the present, but also about uh, uh, the future. is an independent media outlet based in Tunis, which was established in 2014 by journalists, developers and graphic designers. We are partners and friends with outlets like Madamasr in Egypt, Al Jumuriya in Syria and many other media with the same outlook, who want to be independent of the influence of big powers to produce stories that are not picked up by mainstream media and to show what they do not necessarily want to show. We are part of this movement of alternative Arab media that are trying to challenge power and to inform in the best way without being captive to specific interests. The bar was set really high uh, by Tunisia. Uh, the outcomes of which have not been reached uh, essentially anywhere else. Uh, but at, at the very least, Tunisia captured the imagination. There's a, a funny sort of figure of speech in Egypt that comes from like a reality competition show where one of the uh, contestants says, Tunis, meaning the, the answer is, is Tunisia. And so the answer to every problem is often Tunisia. And that, that's now become a figure of speech around the Arab world. Anytime you're wondering how things should be done right, the answer is always Tunisia. Uh, and Tunisia has effectively demonstrated uh, that the revolutionary potential can materialize in a positive way. We'll conclude with an observation on what came at the beginning, the news coverage of early 2011. When examined in retrospect, some of the reporting was caught up in the exuberance, this network and this program included. That is not an admission of error or even naivete. Millions of people in one country after another were tasting freedom of expression for the very first time. The voiceless, finally, telling their own stories, driving 
their own revolutions. The journalism was a reflection of that. It focused on what was happening at the time, and it remains undiminished by what was to come. When you're standing in the moment of defeat, you are inclined to look back on the beginnings and to just completely dismiss them as childish or naive or premature. I think one of the main responsibilities uh, that we have as journalists is to be able to retrieve and reflect on that moment. And it's very, very important for us to be cognizant, to acknowledge the historic and uh, revolutionary nature of what happened in 2011. I think another point of view is that if you were to look at it in the long term, revolutions and real transformations take decades. And this is just one of the growing pains. This period is a growing pain on the path towards real democracy. I don't know if I believe that, I want to believe that, but I can tell you this, that history is littered with examples of leaders and regimes that have curtailed human rights, that have told their population that they have no agency in the country that they live in. And it has not gone well for those leaders and a day of reckoning has come. Saadallah <laughs> Wanous, the famous Syrian playwright, would always say, you know, we are condemned to hope. What else do you have, right? So I wouldn't call it a naivete as much as I, I would call it a dashed hope. The dashed hopes of a generation, 10 years is a long time. 10 years you have a new generation that's angry, that does not have jobs, that's highly educated, fluent in social media, uh, but does, cannot, cannot see a future for itself, cannot see its potential blossoming. This is the next revolution. This is the next movement. This, these are the next groups of people who are gonna go down on the street, smash things, challenge the existing regime, and maybe next time it will work.